Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church on this, the 19th of June, 2022. My name's Adrian. I have the privilege of being one of the elders here at this church, and I welcome you all, whether you're a regular here or whether you're just a visitor, whether you're in the church or whether you're listening in online, welcome. We gather here to worship God. We do that by singing his praises, by praying together, uh, we are reading and listening to the Word of God, and Duncan, our pastor, will be opening up on the uh, chapter of Ecclesiastes. Um, I, don't, I don't have a, a big enough wardrobe to do this, but I've always wanted to emerge after a baptism wearing the identical clothes that you've done the baptism in, and then leave people guessing as to how you managed to do it. But alas, here we are. Uh, in our Sunday morning services, the thing that we devote most time to is to the Bible. As a church, it is our conviction that, uh, that, that this is God's Word to us, that this is where God speaks to us. And so you join us today. We're working our way through one of the more tricky books of the Bible, uh, Ecclesiastes, and maybe even just hearing that chapter of the book read you wondered why on earth are they listening to this. If I were to sum it up, um, the book of Ecclesiastes is one that describes someone's pursuit of the meaning of life. Um, it is not a sugar-coated book. It is real. And we've already walked through as a church the first three chapters of this book and found that the person who's leading us on this expedition to find the meaning of life is someone who likes to be known as the preacher. His conclusion is this, life is like a vapor. He'll use the word vanity, that came up a few times in our chapter, or, or other translations have meaningless. What he means by that is life is like a vapor, it is short-lived, you cannot grasp hold of it, and when it is done, it disappears without a trace. And no matter how hard you try, and no matter how much you might wish your life was other than that, there is nothing that you can do to change it. There is a frustration to life, and it comes about really for one simple but profound reason, death. We are not in control of life, the preacher tells us. Because as creatures who live under the sun, we are bound by the times and seasons, and ultimately, we will be bound by death. But the good news is that God is not bound by these things. And it is actually God who has determined that this is what life will be like for us. This is what it's like for us in this often painful world that we live in. The way to find meaning and joy in life is not to fight against the limitations of life. It is to embrace them and to receive them as gifts from God, as the things God has given to us that we might know Him. This book says, receive your short life with all of its frustrations as a gift from God, and then you will have a chance of enjoying it. Today we come to chapter 4, and the preacher, he moves the argument forward a little bit. But I told you he was honest about life, and I'm sure you spotted that from the very first verse of this chapter. I have a relative who for a long time refused ever to go and see the doctor. It's, it's not that she had perfect health, far from it actually, 
She just wouldn't go. And, you know, family who care for her would come round her and say, well, you know, maybe you could at least just go and see what they say. And she had this consistent reply that said, what is the point in going to see the doctor? They'll only tell you that something's wrong. I mean, who could argue with logic like that, right? And it sounds silly, and it is silly, but it's how most of us have learned to live life. It's how most of us have learned to live. Because we do know that actually there is a lot of misery and a lot of sadness and sorrow in this world. And in fact, there is hardly a corner of this world that we could look at where we would not find some kind of heartbreak. But we learn, don't we? We learn not to go to the doctor. We learn not to look in certain places, not to look too closely at some things that come before us. It is so much easier for us to look the other way. It's more comfortable, comfortable to act as if those miseries that really are in the world just don't exist. I mean, if we look for them, we're only going to find them, right? In chapter 3 of this book, the preacher told us that he saw wickedness in the world, and it upset him because he saw wickedness where there should be justice, where there should be righteousness. He saw only wickedness. He knew instinctively that there was something broken about this world. And in verse 1 of our chapter here, he returns to that theme. Look at what he says. If you've got one of those um, uh, church diaries on the way in, you'll find the verses printed there. He says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. This book of the Bible was written to God's ancient people, Israel. And they were a people who understood what oppression was. I mean, they had been enslaved in Egypt, harshly treated as slaves. And so, not surprisingly, when they were freed from slavery and they were setting up their own nation, the law code that God had given to them was very clear that you must never allow oppression in your community. And so, you would hear directives like this, you shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. You see, that word oppression or oppress when we find it in the Old Testament of the Bible, it, it is almost always speaking about an abuse of an imbalance in power. And so it was the widow, the fatherless, the foreigner, the poor who were oppressed because they could be oppressed. Someone had more power than them and, well, someone would use it. They were defrauding these weaker members of society out of what was rightfully theirs. This is the reality of life under the sun, as the preacher would put it in Ecclesiastes. There is oppression, but what seems to get the preacher most of all is when he sees the tears of the oppressed, verse 1. 
and they had no one to comfort them. That word comfort there is speaking about more than, well, they didn't have anyone to come and put an arm around them and say they're there. It's more than that. This is the comfort from one who can change things, someone who could remedy the situation. There was just no prospect that this oppression could ever be reversed. And so you see, there's a desperation in this oppression. It destroys people. And it doesn't matter how wet their eyes might be with tears. There is nothing and there is no one who will change it. And I suppose I want to say today, the world has not changed. This book of the Bible is, I don't know, maybe 3,000 years old, and the world has not changed. Even in our Great Britain, there are estimated to be around 100,000 victims of modern slavery. One in four of those are children. Some of those children are trafficked to be abused for people's sexual gratification. We don't have to look far at the moment, do we, to see that where war erupts, where children lose their fathers, where families lose their homes, where families lose their hope, when a young woman is raped or a child is murdered and no one is brought to justice for those wickednesses, when women and children are trapped in abusive homes and tears are their normal diet day by day. With the preacher here, we say, we behold the tears of the oppressed and there is no one to comfort them. It's when we stop turning away, isn't it? when we allow ourselves to step into their shoes, whatever oppression comes to your mind when you, when you read these words, that we entirely understand why the preacher says what he says in the next two verses. He says, the dead are more fortunate than the living because they no longer have to look on this oppression that is in the world. In fact, he says, those who are best off are those who have not yet come into the world because they've never known anything of this oppression that so grieves us that we see in the world. They've never seen how evil the world is under the sun. I think we get that, don't we? You see what's going on in the world, you, even in Scotland, and you want to scream. There are times when your blood boils just to see the injustice that goes unchecked and the hopelessness of it all for those who simply have the misfortune of being weak in society, that the more powerful will be ready to ruin them. And the Bible says, yes, be mad about it. You should be mad about it. Yes, weep at the state of the world. What else can you do? Where does it come from? Where does this brokenness, this wickedness, this, this blood-boiling oppression, where does it come from? Well, Ecclesiastes isn't quiet on that, and the preacher has an important message for us. Before we get to the positive message, we've still some more work to do on the negative. We have to wrestle with this painful bit. 
The preacher shows us, first of all, verses 4 down to verse 8, that the isolated life is destructive. The isolated life is destructive. Here there are some valuable lessons on how we think of others. You see where the striving of mankind comes from? Verse 4, he sees all the toil, all the skill and work it comes from, a man's envy of his neighbor. It is the perspective on life that sees your neighbor as a threat, a rival, someone whom you would hate to think made more money or climbed further up the career ladder or had a happier family than you. And this envy that drives so much of this toil, it produces two foolish responses. The first one in verse 5 is the response of the fool who, as the preacher puts it, folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Envious of others' success, the fool simply gives up and he wastes away. He consumes himself in his envy. The other response in verse 6 is the opposite. It's the workaholic. They envy the progress of others, and so they determine they are going to work with all of their might to better them. They are those who have two hands full, grasping at everything they can. That's the language he uses, two hands full. But what are they full of? Full of toil and a striving after wind. Two hands full of toil. All of this frantic effort, all of this hard work is there to try and produce some better life sometime in the future. And all the while missing the possibility of enjoying life now. Far better, says the preacher, to have only one handful and to have contentment and quietness than to have two hands full and to be on the path of a futile life. The preacher is targeting the foolishness of the isolated life Because he says here, in a sense, the one who has least reason to work, the person who is all alone, is the one who has no end to all his toil. Again, that word vanity appears in verse 7, the futile, vapor-like quality of life. It's seen in the one person who has no other, verse 8. No family, no kin, no meaningful other, but someone who is single-mindedly determined to accumulate more and more and work for more and more, and his eyes are never satisfied with his riches, and so he can never stop. He can never take stock of life to ask, why? Why am I putting myself through all this? Why am I willing to live a life that is day-to-day devoid of enjoyment This one who is all alone is a sad picture. And the preacher tells us that it is destructive to live a life that always views your neighbor as simply a person to beat. And don't think this doesn't apply here. I mean, I want my church to be bigger than his, I want my kids to do better than theirs. I'm going to be richer than the lot of them. This is the isolated life. Oh, sure, you may have people around you, but this perspective on life is the isolated life. 
And the preacher says it's like trying to catch the wind. You can't do it. The preacher has a better vision of life. And in verses 9, verse 9 through to verse 12, he shows us instead that the life turned towards others is joyful. The life that is turned towards others is joyful. Uh, these are some of the better known verses in this book. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. But what he describes in these verses is the benefits that come from instead of living life all alone, living life in community. What benefits come from it? First of all, they have a good reward for their toil. They can be more productive as two than as two ones. Second of all, there is a restorative power when you're with others. If you stumble and fall, he puts it, then you have someone to lift you up. There is warmth in community with others. All alone, you can feel the cold, but if you have someone to cuddle into, then you can stay warm, even on the most discouraging and bleakest of days. To be part of a community is to have someone that can encourage and spur you on on those bleakest of days. And fourth of all, there is strength in community, a strength that we do not have on our own. And as he puts it there, two can withstand an assailant where one might succumb to him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. He says we know this instinctively. A single cord has whatever strength it has, but when we weave that together with other cords, then we make a unit that is stronger, stronger than the sum of its parts. A life turned towards others is joyful because it is productive, restorative. It is life-giving. It is strengthening. The preacher is making the case for a life lived in meaningful community with other people. He has labored for a number of chapters, the brevity, the fragility of life. And here is a key plank for living your short life wisely with others, for others, oriented towards others. I guess it's a longhand way of saying loving your neighbor. I think as a society, we have felt this in recent times. It's true over recent decades, in Scotland anyway, we have tended more towards isolated lives. But there has been something about an enforced isolation from others that has caused many to see and sense a, a longing for community, a, a, an ability to see the benefits, the joys that can come from it. And I believe that is a God-given instinct. Human beings were made for community. We could think it strange when we read the Bible's account of creation, that God created Adam, and Adam knew God. Adam had nothing restricting his relationship with God, and yet when God looked at Adam, he said, it's not good for the man to be alone. And so God made Adam his wife and his companion for life. And how easy it would be for us to come to the wrong conclusions you know, when we hear the preacher say, your life is short, it will soon be over, 
Well, we could easily say, well, that means I need to work harder. That means I need to spend more energy on accumulating as much as I can, as quick as I can, because life will be over soon. But I think chapter 4, for all of its sorrow that it opens with, these verses about how we are better together are like a breath of fresh air. He says, the wise life is not one that through envy accumulates more for themselves and then jealously protects it. No, the wise life, the wise way to live this short and soon-to-be-forgotten life is to live it with and for others. It is to have an outward-facing disposition. And I suppose standing here, the obvious application would be to say, isn't this describing what the church is? The church is not the building. It is the people, the community of God's people. The Bible describes what should characterize the church. It's a place where Christians bear one another's burdens, where someone who may be of a a lower social standing than another is not regarded as anyone's inferior, but simply regarded as a brother or a sister in Christ. It is a place where such is the interconnectedness of its members that when one has a reason to rejoice, the others in the community rejoice with them. They don't enviously plot how to better them. They rejoice with them. And when someone mourns, then the others in the community weep with them. This is what the church is to be. And maybe that sounds appealing to you, but actually it's, it's jumping the gun a little bit. It's to miss the reason why the church could ever be that kind of community. Because you see, we're all made for community, but first and foremost, we have been made for community with God. The Bible reveals that there is one God, and in that one God, there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the name in which Olivia was baptized earlier in the service. These three persons are united in one Godhead. They have one purpose, and they exist in perfect fellowship of love together. Now, God made human beings in His image, made for fellowship, made with a capacity to know Him and to fellowship with Him. This is the community that we were made for first, communion with God. But we've already thought about how this world is bent out of shape, the oppression that is in the world and driven by an envy of neighbor. And well, when we start to think of it in those terms, we see that that comes really close to home. That same sort of envy is in my heart. We have all turned away from God. We have thought that we would be better living the life that is isolated from Him. But we're wrong. The isolated life is destructive. And the life that is isolated from God is especially so. It is the road to destruction. The oppression in the world, as mad as it makes us from time to time, it is something that God is permanently against. 
that his wrath, it doesn't come and go depending on whether he's watching the news. It is fixed permanently against the wickedness in our world and against everything that opposes him. And so every injustice, every act of selfish ambition will one day be judged and put right by God. And that's devastating news for us if we are living the isolated life from him. We were made to know him. And yet we so often say, I'll be better off without God. No, the life in isolation is destructive. But here's the good news. The good news that we've had testified to already in Olivia's baptism. Jesus Christ, God's Son, has come. And while humanity is marked out by envy and oppression, he came as a man and lived the life of perfect obedience to God, a life of true love for God and for neighbor, and he gave up that perfect life to death on a cross. There he endured the wrath of God that burns against sin. And you can be sure of it because God raised Jesus from the dead. And because of that, the call goes out to every one of us. Turn away from the life that is isolated from God and turn to Jesus. There you will find forgiveness of sins. Follow him and enter into the most unimaginably great community that you could ever be part of. Here's the words of Jesus. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. That is unimaginable, isn't it? He's saying that God himself will come and make his home with the one who comes and follows Jesus. What a remarkable community to be brought into, the community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But this is what you were made for, and it is through Jesus you will find it. And then you come into this remarkable community also, a remarkable community of people called the church, where we all belong to each other because we first belong to Jesus. You see, to belong to Jesus Christ is to not be able to have this isolated life anymore because, well, frankly, others need you. Now, I must confess, the church hasn't always represented well what it's supposed to be, which may be the understatement of the day. We still sin. We still get it wrong. We still allow envy to dominate our hearts at times. But usually the reason why we get it wrong is because we've forgotten this, that the community of the church is the community we have with God through Jesus Christ first. And maybe Bankery Christian Fellowship Church, we need to be reminded of that today. That when we think about our brothers and sisters in this church, that we first and foremost think of those who are part of the community of God and because of that, we have community together with one another. When you are content with the isolated life, sure, it's more energy, but it's not what life was for. 
Sure, there's a lot more goes into it, but it's not what we were designed to be. And that need of community extends even beyond these four walls to be in our local community, representing Jesus, showing that love for others, not seeing our neighbor as someone simply to better. There is a tendency to think that we are the exception to the rule. We're always the exception to the rule. Oh, yeah, yeah, I hear that, but if you only knew what kind of personality I was or, you know, what kind of circumstances I was in. Well, I think the final paragraph of chapter 4, even though it is somewhat complicated to kind of just be clear on how it fits with what's already been said, I think this final paragraph is trying to say to us, there's no exceptions. No one is really the exception to the rule. And I say that because here the preacher goes to tell us about the king. And he tells the story of the king and, and, um, who, who came from poverty to the throne. And uh, what we've already seen is when the preacher speaks about the king, he's using the king as the ultimate example, the person who can test the theory to, to its final degree. So what do we learn from the king here? The king was in poverty, he came to the throne, and then what happened? He forgot how to take advice. He forgot how to take, his, how to take advice, which is another way of saying he opted for the isolated life. He didn't need the input of others. He had the isolated life. The preacher says it's better to be a poor and wise youth than to be an old and foolish king. Because the isolated life will destroy. It will destroy you, and it will destroy those around you. The message of the Bible is, come to Jesus Christ today and know true fellowship, true community with your Creator through the sacrifice that Jesus has made for sinners, sinners like you and like me. God has made us to know Him and he has loved us so much that he has given his son that we might do just that. Come to him today and find that when it comes to God, you're better together. You will find that when it comes to people around you, you're better together. And we will be on the road to living a life well lived in the fear of God. Amen. Amen.